Thank you for listening to the Grace Harvest Church podcast. For more information, go to graceharvestchurch.org. This morning, uh, we have a special guest to speak with us, actually guests. We have a couple from um, Old Town, Idaho. You probably don't even, don't even know where Old Town, Idaho is, but they uh, help lead a dynamic and incredible church in Old Town, Idaho. It's called House of the Lord. And uh, Joel Eklund is uh, your executive pastor there, correct? He's the executive pastor there. He's been a youth pastor, a janitor, the sound man. He's played every instrument. I mean, he, he's had to do it all over the years. And uh, I really love and appreciate Joel. Joel is Drew's brother, our worship pastor that was up here. And, uh, and his wife, Lindsay, and their children, their family are with us as well. And make sure you give it up real big for them. And... Joel has a great gift. Uh, one of the things I love about him is he's passionate, he's intense, but he's also really good at teaching sound doctrine and theology. And you're going to see that today. He's going to challenge you and stir you up. Would you put your hands together and welcome Joel Eklund? Come on, Joel. Bring it. Well, hey, good morning, church. How many of you guys are excited to be at Grace Harvest this morning? Come on, Come on man. This is such a great place to be. Uh, I, for one, am just such... Uh, I'm, so, I'm so honored to, uh, to be asked to, to speak here. You know, if House of the Lord is my, is my church home, uh, I view Grace Harvest as like my vacation home. Uh, I'm pretty rich in that I've got a vacation home church. Uh, uh, my, my wife and I have been coming here um, about every year at least least once to, uh, to, to visit with my brother and, uh, and his family, and we've always been so blessed by the ministry here at Grace Harvest. It's, it's, if you didn't realize this, this is actually a very unique church um, with just an, an absolutely incredible leadership team. Um, I just wanted to honor real quickly, really your whole team. I, uh, I mentioned this in first service, but um, you know when I first got into ministry, any, anybody who's been in ministry for a while knows that when you first get into ministry... You think that you have all the answers for about two weeks. And then two weeks in, when you realize that, uh, that you, know, you actually don't know what you're doing, you really have to lean on people that do know what they're doing in order to not die. And, uh, and for me, uh, the, 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 the staff here at Grace Harvest, particularly in that time, um, Pastor Raul, who obviously isn't here, for, he, it's uh, part of his sabbatical, but... Raul was like, a, was like a life vest for me. He helped me to, to not sink early on in ministry. And, uh, and Pastor Doug and Peggy have been such a help to me personally. Um, it's, in my experience, it is really very rare for pastors from a church that you don't attend or that you're not on staff at to actually really want to pour into young leaders. I remember particularly one time... Uh, Pastor Doug and I were at a conference together, like not together, but we were there at the same time. And I remember asking him, you know, if we could sit down and talk. And, you know, about 30 minutes into this, 30 minutes into this, this coffee time we were having, he's like, so what are we doing here? What are we talking about? And, you know, because he was, he was assuming that I, was, that I was asking him about something specific. And really what I was wanting is I was just wanting to talk to a dad. And, uh, and over the years, you know, since that time, Pastor Doug has made himself so available to me. Um, and, and honestly, Pastor, I, I really don't take it for granted. I hope you know that. Um, I value, you know, everything that you've, you've poured into my life, and I'm just grateful to be here. So this morning, 
Um, if you're taking notes, I'd like you to please write down House of Miracles. House of Miracles. Pastor Doug had mentioned to me that, uh, that as a church, you've been in a series called Supernatural, and the Lord really put this word on my heart for you this morning. Uh, we're going to go, uh, we're going to begin today. By the way, we're going to go through a lot of scripture. If you're not ready for that, pff, dude, you're in church. I don't, I don't know what to tell you, you know, but <laughs> uh, we're going to go through a lot of scripture today. We're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, and it goes like this. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So that your faith, listen to this, this is really important. So that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. Let me put it to you this way. What wins you is what has to keep you. See, if I stand up here this morning and I convince you to come to Jesus, then someone else who is also equally or even greater gifted than I am in, in, in preaching or teaching or speaking can also convince you to walk away from the faith. How you are one is how you have to be kept. If I maybe say it a different way, it's why there are a lot of circuses in churches right now. And the more that we continue the circus act, the greater the circus has to become. Because if you win people in the flesh, you've got to keep them in the flesh. But if you win them in the spirit, the spirit keeps them himself. How you're one is how you must be kept. Christianity, while having a bedrock of the teaching of both Jesus and the apostles, is not primarily a philosophical exercise. True or false, Jesus was a great teacher. True. But he was also a teacher who claimed that he was God. Now, this should probably cause us to think about this a little bit, because maybe, let's say I preach for 40 minutes, and maybe I convince you, or maybe I think that you make you... I make you think that I know what I'm talking about. And then at the end of it, I say, also, I'm the second coming of Christ. I would hope that that would cause you to question everything that I said before that. Because I may have said some great things, but the moment that I say, I am the incarnated Christ. You now have a decision to make. Because I went from being a good teacher to being either exactly who I said I am, a lunatic or a liar. You see, the reason that Paul, in coming to Corinth, reminded the church, can you imagine, imagine for a moment that we are in Corinth right now, and I get up on this stage, and I'm just like hunched over and shaking, and I look weak, and I don't talk very well, but at the end of it, the Holy Spirit falls, people get healed, people get saved. You're not going to worry about the fact that I looked weak from the beginning. Because it wasn't me that did any of that. It was the Holy Spirit. He didn't come into the world to make better people. He came to bring dead people to life. He didn't come to give you a pathway to self-improvement, but a doorway to be made entirely new in him. Has anyone in here ever watched The Princess Bride? 
Okay, if you, were, if you grew up like a Christian, like in the last 30 years, that was like the one movie that was completely acceptable in every household for whatever reason, okay? Now, but go, come with me for a minute. Many of you probably remember that scene where they, they, they take the dead Wesley to Miracle Max, and, and they're like, I don't know what you can do with this guy, but apparently you, you, you work miracles, so can you help us out? And, and so what does he do? He puts the magic bellows you know, into, into, into Wesley's mouth, and he says, what do you got to live for? And then you, know, you hear Wesley go, true love. And then, of course, Miracle Max kind of like says, what's to blade? And then his wife comes in. Anyway, the point is, coming back to it, he says, he finally says to him, he's not dead, he's mostly dead. See, if I may contend, many of us, especially the farther away that we get from the moment that Jesus rescued us, we can tend to whitewash our history and we can kind of convince ourselves that maybe we were better than we thought we were all along. Maybe we were partly dead. Maybe we were mostly dead. Maybe we were somewhat dead. But friend, I got to tell you, the Bible doesn't say that you were almost dead. It says that you were totally dead in your trespasses. If you are in this building this morning and you don't believe in miracles, friend, I got to tell you, if you are in Christ, you are a walking, talking miracle. Salvation is the greatest miracle that you can ever witness. And it actually should be the bedrock of your expectation about the miracles of God. Let me put it to you another way. If we were to take a historical position about the person of Jesus, what I'd tell you is this. Some of us, because we have believed in God or Jesus for so long, we can forget how insane it is that we believe in Jesus at all. If you believe in Jesus, can I remind you what you believe? You believe that 2,000 years ago, a short Jewish guy, and when I say short, I mean short, like sometimes because we see, you know, we see like these, these, these movies of Jesus and he's like this tall, statuesque, like really handsome guy. I mean, he's a good looking fella. We can forget that at the time, the average height of people in that era was five feet or less. So you believe that a short Jewish guy 2,000 years ago who claimed to be God came down, was incarnated, fully God, fully man. He lived a perfect life. Guys, he made it through junior high. He lived a perfect life. Then, in, th in a three-year span, he, he performed miracle after miracle after miracle after a miracle, and then he was crucified on a Roman cross. But more than that, three days later, he came up out of the grave, and then he ascended into heaven and poured out his Holy Spirit. Now, for those of us who have been in Christ, we're like, yeah, of course. Friend, if you can believe that, why do we have a hard time believing that this same Jesus has the, doesn't have the power anymore to work miracles? Why is it difficult to believe that a God who we believe right now, his sacrifice that he made 2,000 years ago is still enough for your sin today? Why is it hard for us to believe that miracles still happen? Your salvation should be the bedrock of your expectation for God. If he could take you dead in your trespasses and raise you to life in him, it should not be hard to believe that he can heal your cancer. See, Jesus' ministry was marked by the supernatural because that's who God is. In fact, I think sometimes the term supernatural, even though supernatural is kind of like, it's like the low-hanging fruit. 
of how we explain the work of God, it's actually probably not the best word to use when we think about God. To God, these things aren't supernatural. They're natural. This is what he does. This is who he is. He takes the impossible and he makes it possible. He takes your weakness and he turns it to strength. To him, to the work of the Holy, the work of the Holy Spirit isn't supernatural. It's just what's natural to the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to talk just really briefly about cessationism because every time that I come into a church and I, and I preach a message like this, I want to make sure that I hit really hard on a particularly American evangelical doctrine that we know as, as excuse me, as cessationism, which is a product of dispensationalism. In a super nutshell, cessationism is that the work of the Holy Spirit as we see it in the book of Acts effectively stopped after the Bible was canonized in 325 A.D., so when the church fathers and, and all the leaders came together at the Council of Nicaea and they decided what books go in the Bible and which ones don't, that all of a sudden the Holy Spirit breathed a sigh of relief and said, great, now I don't have to heal anybody anymore. Whew. That all of a sudden the ministry of apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers ceased. Can I just tell somebody who might believe that really quickly why that's wrong? First of all, it's not in the Bible. That's a good start. Secondly, the scriptures actually never tell us. The Bible, let me put it this way. The Bible never promises us the Bible. Like there's never a scripture in scripture that says at some point in time, we will receive 66 books in one. There's not one prophetic utterance. There's not one moment in scripture that actually tells us that someday we'll have it all slapped together in one book. But you know what's all throughout scripture? The promise that I really have is the Holy Spirit and his empowerment. Now, don't get me wrong. What I'm not telling you is the Bible is not important. What I am telling you is that to believe that because we now have the Bible, we no longer need the Holy Spirit, it doesn't equate. In fact, one of my biggest problems with cessationism is that it tells us that because we have the perfect scripture, we don't need the Holy Spirit anymore. The problem is, is it also tells us that about a third of the Bible we no longer have to do. Because that time is over. Cessationism, guys, i got to tell you, is not a biblical doctrine. It's a doctrine of men. We believe that everything that is in Scripture is available to the believer today. Here's the big idea. The Bible is not a history of what God once did, but an invitation into what he's doing. See, when I see the work of the apostles, I don't say to myself, wow, I wish God would do it in my day. When I see the work of the apostles, I say, wow, thank God that he's still doing it in my day. Is he still writing scripture? No, he's not writing scripture. The problem is, is that a lot of people have, have, have equated the ministry of the apostles and prophets as though those things were only in place so we could write scripture. Friend, that is not what the ministry of apostles and prophets is. See, some say that God only heals when he wants to these days. And that he doesn't use human agency. Or in other words, he doesn't need us in order to heal. Is this true? Absolutely. God doesn't need us to heal. God doesn't, can I, maybe, maybe I say this a different way. If God doesn't need us to heal, maybe we ask a different question. Why does God need angels? He doesn't. There is no deficiency in God. He needs nothing. 
Why didn't God just come down and talk to Mary himself when he was going to have the Holy Spirit impregnate her with his own son? Why send Gabriel? Because he wanted to. How many of you are aware that God literally does whatever he wants? He literally does whatever he wants. And in his sovereignty, what he has decided is that he wants to work in context with people. It doesn't mean that God can never heal without human agency. It's that sometimes we have this perspective that, well, you know, God, you know, God, God doesn't need me. No, he doesn't need you. He wants you. There's a difference. I mean, how many of you in this room that, are, that have a spouse that would say that you would prefer to be wanted rather than needed? See, if my, if my spouse came to me and said, I need you, I married you because I need you, my first thought would be, whoa, what? What do you mean you married me because you needed me? I thought you wanted me. Yeah, see, this is the thing. Sometimes our problem is, is we look at God using human agency to, to do his works, and we think to ourselves, well, God doesn't need anything. No, he doesn't. He wants to work with his kids. How many of you in this room had kids because you wanted slaves? <laughs> A couple people were like, uh, yes, actually. <laughs> no, but here's the thing. Most of us, we don't think to ourselves, when my wife and I first made the decision to have children, it wasn't because, oh man, the house is so big. We need some help sweeping. No, we had kids because we wanted children. It just so happens, see, okay, <laughs> go with me, parents. I'm going to convince you. Okay, when you started teaching your children how to do chores, how did that go? Wasn't great. I mean, you... you <laughs> The thing is, when you first start teaching your kids how to do chores, the reality is you know, hands down, you do that chore way better than they do. When you start teaching them to clean the kitchen or mow the lawn or sweep, you know, sweep a mop, you recognize, I can do this 100% better than they can. And yet, here's the thing. There's two reasons why you teach your children to work. The first is for their benefit, Amen. right? Because at one point in time, they're not going to be under your house anymore. And they're, the work ethic that you teach them now is what's going to help them be promoted later. But it's also for your enjoyment. It's, we want to see our kids grow. We want to see them mature. Like when your kid is five and they're whining about everything, you give them grace because they're five. If your kid is 20 and they're still whining about everything, it's not cute anymore. <laughs> see, in the same way, the Holy Spirit works alongside us because it's for our benefit and for his glory. How many of you know that you don't heal? Jesus does. But at the same time, if you're not laying your hands on the sick, you're not giving him opportunity either. See, our culture today, I feel like I need to talk a little bit more about God's need or his, his lack of need. See, if every single person in the world stopped praising God, he would not cease to be God. Our culture has, this, has sort of this perception that if everybody would stop going to church, if everybody would stop singing, if everybody would stop getting saved, that all of a sudden Jesus wouldn't have any power. Friend, i got to tell you something. If you, you may not like your district court judge, but if you break a law, you're still going to stand before him. His kingship does not need my praise. I need to praise the king. Nevertheless, just like you teach your children how to work, 
with you both for their benefit and enjoyment. So God trains and equips us through his Holy Spirit to perform his works on this earth because it's to our benefit and his glory. In fact, there has never been a time in human interaction with God that God has ceased to use human agency in order to bring about his purposes in the earth. It doesn't mean that he never does anything sovereignly. It means that in his sovereignty, he typically uses his relationship with people to do his work, or at least that we help in his work. What do you think was harder, creating the world or naming the creatures? Probably creating the world, right? But wouldn't it have just saved Adam a lot of time if God would have innately had every single creature given a name already? But instead, when he created Adam, Adam's first job was to line up the creatures one by one and determine what their name was. Because he wanted to give Adam a job. He wanted to give him ownership. God could have done it all himself, but he wanted Adam to name the creatures. And Adam came up with really funny names like platypus. <laughs> I kind of wonder what God thought about that one. Like, oh, platypus. Okay, he's really going for it. Our culture is really interesting. You know, we, we consume movies, books, TV shows, all sorts of entertainment about the supernatural because it's fascinating. And yet, we are naturally suspicious, even in the church, of the supernatural in real life because we have been conditioned to believe that the miraculous only lives in our imagination. See, we love the Avengers. Like, I mean, if, if you want to, just to prove it to you, the, the highest grossing movies and book series all over the world right now are no longer romantic comedies. They're not like, you know, they're, they're not those like older shows like Anne of Green Gables that my mom used to force me to, you know, watch on pain of death. Like, it's, 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 it's movies about normal people that turn into supernatural beings. But the problem is I'm convinced, especially in the church, the more that we convince these things, or excuse me, the more that we consume these things, the more we are conditioned to believe it only exists on the silver screen. Here's the big idea. We believe in good communication, erudite leaders, spiritual and natural education, but what we really owe the world isn't our intellect or opinions, but an encounter with God. Amen. What I owe the world is not my preaching gift. It's not my ability to exegete. It's an encounter with God. Listen, if we, come away from, if we come away from encounters with people and all we've done is given them the party line about this and that and they don't come away changed because we didn't actually bring the, bring the presence of God into the conversation, I didn't do what I was asked to do. I'm going to give you just a couple thoughts on empowerment. Number one is that empowerment is necessary. Empowerment is necessary. Listen to this. This is Acts 1, 4 to 8. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? And he said to them, it's not for, listen to this, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but, and he totally redirects the conversation, he says, but... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus' own disciples fell into a trap that a lot of us do. They were so busy worrying about eschatology that they forgot that the end things are God's purview. In a lot of ways, we can find ourselves trying to figure out what God is doing rather than, what, rather than doing what we know we're supposed to do. 
God's purview is the end things. My purview is now. See, I, my, job, my job is not to determine the signs of the ends of the times. My job is to go out into all the earth and preach the gospel to all nations, making baptism. Do you see where I'm going with this? Even the apostles at that point were like, is this it? Is this what we were waiting for? And Jesus said, stop talking about it. Go do what I told you to do. But I want you to consider for a moment that the disciples were given a command in Matthew 28, the Great Commission. They were given a command to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. But then in Acts chapter 1, he says, wait. But wait, though. Because unless you have what I'm giving you, you're not going to be able to fulfill what I've told you. How many of you in this room are in the trades? You know, my, my first day on the job, my boss asked me, do you have any tools? And I said, well, no. I've never done this before. And so instead of having me work, he took me to a hardware store. And we, we went all through the store, and he picked out a lot of tools that I had no idea what they were for. Like, I knew what a hammer was for, okay? At least I knew that. I didn't know what a speed square was for. I didn't know like, what, what all these different things that he was putting into this bag that he had bought. But I knew that if he, if he was getting them for me, then they must be important for my task. Because I tell you, I, I've been around a lot of foremen, and one of the things that they hate the most is when guys show up to the job site and they don't have their tools. They don't have what's necessary. Unfortunately for me, all of those tools had to be paid out of my first paycheck. Luckily for you, Jesus paid for every gift that you need, every tool that you need to fulfill the work of ministry in his own blood. It is already paid for, and yet most of us are not allowing the Holy Spirit to take us to the hardware store. I've had people ask me if they need the Holy Spirit to do ministry. Can I take off my guest speaker hat and put on my pastor hat real quick? That is one of my least favorite questions that people ask me. Friend, you need the Holy Spirit to go to Safeway these days. Okay? Absolutely. If the apostles needed the Holy Spirit, you need the Holy Spirit. I mean, can I maybe ask us a different question? Are we better than the apostles? Were they more deficient than we are? Were they more broken than we are? No, then it stands to reason that if Jesus... If Jesus needed the Holy Spirit, and, and, and be reminded that the Holy Spirit descended upon Christ at his baptism, but especially if we look at the, whole, if we look at the apostles knowing that they are not fully God or fully, they, they were just fully man. If they needed the Holy Spirit, you need it. Number two, empowerment is to be desired. Desired. See, some of, us look, some of us are looking at this like, oh, man, it's, it's what I have to have. Okay, how many of you remember being a kid on Christmas morning? Yeah. Was there any one of you that when you came downstairs to open your presents, you ever looked at a present and you said, oh, what's that? Well, that doesn't look like a very appealing box, Dad. I think I might just let that one stew under the tree for a few months. No, man, like... My, my kids are practically pulling me out of bed to go open their presents, right? I'm not having to convince them to open the biggest one under the tree. But for whatever reason, maybe it's because of our Western mindset. Maybe it's because we think that stoicism is spiritual or something. That the moment we see the gifts of God and we see how God works in scriptures, we're like, oh, that's so uncomfortable, pastor. 
Jesus didn't save you and renew you and raise you up to new life so you could be comfortable. I mean, guys, every single apostle but one died a martyr's death. Every single one but one gave the ultimate sacrifice. And sometimes we think that we were born again to comfort. Listen to this. This is 1 Corinthians 14.1. Pursue love, but strive eagerly for the spiritual gifts, and above all that you may prophesy. Pursue love and strive eagerly for spiritual gifts. You know, one of the traps that Christians easily fall into is the same trap a lot of married people fall into. How many men in the room know that when you get married, you should be pursuing your wife as much or more after you go through the ceremony as you did before? I'm going to say it over to that side of the room. I got a few more amens. How many men in the room realize that when you get married, you should be pursuing the woman you married more than you than before before you got married? How many of you get that? Like we understand intellectually that if we want a strong marriage, it's going to take work. It's going to take action. But sometimes we don't think the same thing about spiritual gifts. And yet Paul explicitly says, you should want what God has for you. Not begrudgingly, not like, oh man, God wants one more thing from me. Oh, geez. <laughs> There's not one piece of your life God didn't pay for already. Receiving empowerment is not about God getting one more thing from you. It's about God giving you one more thing. I've seen people who get filled with the Holy Spirit and then become very comfortable with speaking in tongues but never become eager to have any, anything else. Now, I went to a particular church in Los Angeles and I was, I was ministering there. And um, <laughs> I was in a charismatic church, so naturally I just assumed that a lot of people had you know, prophetic words spoken over their life. And so foolishly, I, I stood up. There's probably 180 you know, people in the room and, and I stood up and at the very end of this message, uh, I think it was on a, on a Friday night, I said... I'm going to stick around, and I'm going to prophesy over any person in this room who has never received a prophetic word. I kind of assumed that maybe you know, 10, 15, 20 people would, you know, would stand up. When I said amen, the whole church stood up and came forward. So, I, so myself and one other guy, we literally prophesied over almost 200 people until almost 1 o'clock in the morning. If we, if, we get, if we get really comfortable in our spiritual giftings and we never really go after anything else, I guess what I'm telling you is this. If you are still munching off of bread from 30 years ago, I have to tell you there is fresh bread for you. I, I mean, I've, I've talked to people who they have one testimony about what God has done in their life, and they tell it, and they tell it, and they tell it to the end of their days. I'm not saying don't tell your testimony. I'm saying if you've only got one, friend, you need to go back to the well because there's another. You don't have to live on yesterday's bread. You don't have to live on the one time that God showed up for you really strongly. I got to tell you, there is a divine encounter for you that goes beyond just a once-in-your-lifetime once deal. There's a divine encounter for you every single day. There is fresh bread for you. Sometimes we just have to make sure we go back to the baker for it. Don't be content. This is, this is kind of the point that Paul's making. When he's saying, eagerly go after He's saying, don't be content. The same God who gave you the one can give you more. 
I'm going to go right to number three because I'm running out of time here. Number three, empowerment should inspire gratitude. You know, I heard a quote the other day that really gave me some perspective. This particular leader said, I'm going to be referring to him, who's the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Ghost from now on to remind myself that someone had to die so I could receive him. Often we compartmentalize the things that Jesus accomplished through a hierarchy of what we think is important. We put like tier one is, you know, sin, repentance, and salvation. And then tier two is regeneration and inheritance. And then tier three, finally, or maybe tier four, no, tier three is empowerment and purpose. Friend, I want to tell you that that is a particularly Western way of anesthetizing the gospel to where all you have to do is just say yes to Jesus and then be a good person the rest of your life. What I'm telling you is God is systematic in that one key opens a different door and you keep going through the doors until you're at the place that you need to be. I'm not telling you that baptism of the Holy Spirit is necessary for salvation. I am telling you that your purpose, what God has for you, your destiny cannot be fulfilled without the infilling of the Holy Spirit. What God has for you, you cannot accomplish in your own strength. And if you can, you are living well below what God has called you to do. The good news isn't that Jesus died for our sins. It's not just that Jesus died for our sins, but that he also gained us access to the Holy Spirit, to empowerment, and to purpose. And there is nothing of small importance in the plans of God. There is nothing of small importance. If I was to open up a watch to you right now, some of the smallest things are the most important to the workings of that watch. It's not about size. It's about position. It's about purpose. Friend, you need the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. John 16, 7, listen to this. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. This should be, I mean, I'm not a, so I don't like needles. And uh, there's a reason why, like, my brother has, like, some tats and I just don't. Number one, like, he's just got guns. You know what I mean? Like, got the guns but number two is I, I fear needles anyway if i was going to tattoo anything on my body it would be this let me ask you a question hypothetically if i asked you what would you prefer a 24 7 relationship where jesus was alongside you he moved into your house wherever you went he went wherever you worked at he worked at you got to be with jesus 24 7 or an internal relationship with the holy spirit what would you choose? Now, the really spiritual person in the room would probably be like, oh, well, I would choose the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And you would be right. But the thing is, is that most of us, when I ask that question, we'd be like, I feel like the 24-7 relationship with Jesus, where he goes with me everywhere, would be the better one. And it's probably because we don't understand what Jesus had in the Holy Spirit. He was saying that what you don't need right now because obviously the goal, what is our goal? Our goal is to be with Jesus forever, right? But right now, in the here and now, what he's saying is, is it would be better for one, it would be better to have multiple people, many people filled with the same spirit that's within me than for me to stick around for a while longer. That if I go, I can give you what I have, not just give you who I am. The ministry of the Holy Spirit should be precious in our eyes, not something to belittle or be scoffed at. We are so good at scoffing. We are so good at judging quickly. 
Listen to this, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 21. This is where I'm, I'm, I'm ending now. It says, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Test everything and retain what is good. Paul is telling us that a heart posture that limits the Holy Spirit and what he can do is to be entirely avoided in the church. Maybe I'll boil it down to this. There is a difference between discernment and suspicion. I'm going to say it again because it's really, really important. There is a major difference between discernment and suspicion. And I would, I would go so far as to say many of the places that believe that they're exercising discernment when they limit what the Holy Spirit can do in their church services are not walking in discernment. They're walking in suspicion. Because it's easier to say no to everything rather than having to correct a few things. Friend, we are not suspicious people. We are discerning people. Here's, this is my last thing. As believers, we should want everything God has for us and not an ounce less. I don't want just enough. I want everything. I don't want as much as I can get by with. I want everything he's got. I mean, it's like, it's like, you know, I haven't gone to a buffet in a really long time, but who goes to a buffet and has one plate? You know what I mean? Like, why spend the money? What's the point? You go to a buffet to walk out of there 15 pounds heavier. Okay? Listen, we have to stop being a people that only want the bare minimum, and we need to start being a people that say, Jesus, everything you bought for me, everything you made available for me, everything that you have for me, I want all of it. I don't want an ounce less than everything you have for me. And I'm going to pray a blessing over you, and we're going to dismiss, okay? So, Lord Jesus, we thank you for this wonderful people. God, I pray that you would bless them, Lord, that you would keep them, you cause your face to shine upon them. Lord, lift your countenance towards them and give them peace. It's in Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. Come on, can we give the Lord a praise this morning? You guys are dismissed. Have an amazing week.